Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, researchers discover multiple ways to attack LastPass using a cocktail of vulnerabilities to own any Android device, and then how you can own a point-of-sale system with a poisoned barcode. Then it's a great big batch of your questions, our answers, a rock and roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 242 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on November 19th, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those sponsors as this year's show goes on. Our live stream, why that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. You should go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris, oh, everybody. Thanks now, for watching. Okay, Alan, I know no one at home is going to be able to even see it, so you were just telling me on the pre-show, you have quite the cool shirt on today. Yes. Uh, can, can you show I it to did. me on camera again? Yeah, it is. Now, just as a, uh, for those of you who are listening, Theater of the Mind here, it is a patent drawing on Alan's shirt, and I never was going to guess it, so uh, why don't you just tell us I what I had it to Google it. Yeah, yeah, you had to Google your own shirt. <laughs> Welcome well, to 2015. Read, uh, you know, when I, at first when I read... Farnsworth. I was thinking it was some Futurama reference or something. Yes. Yeah. But no, it turns out that the Futurama character is a reference to this. Right, right. It's his, um, uh, the patent drawings for the very first video camera. Awesome. Kind of perfect so for the video it's, podcast. It's, it's not, it wasn't called a video camera back then. It was labeled, labeled as an image dissector. <laughs> Ooh, an image dissector. That's very cool. Mm-hmm. Well, we're about to dissect LastPass. Uh, this is our first story this yes. week. We have a big show coming up, but let's go here. There's, the headline starts with even LastPass will be stolen, so just deal with it. Even the last pass. Even the last pass. The whole point of last pass is that it's the last password you'll ever need. Right. (laughs) Even the last password will be stolen. Yeah. Uh, So uh, during the the security researchers, two people wrote this uh, talk for a security conference. And uh, basically one of them during a red team pen test, where basically there's an attacker team and a defender team and they're working against each other, right? Uh, during one of those pen tests, he gained access to several machines on the network and found that all of them had files that referenced LastPass. Mm. And so he's like, oh, damn, the passwords are all locked down or whatever. So he, uh, he came to his boss and told him, you know, it'd be cool to spend some time figuring out how LastPass works and if it would be possible to actually steal the LastPass credentials and then exploit it further than that. And at the company where they work, they have a 10% of your time for doing research uh-huh. on small projects. And so they spent their time digging into LastPass. And uh, basically, in the end, we found how credentials are stored locally on the machines when you use LastPass and wrote a Metasploit plugin uh, so we could use it to extract the vault contents from all the compromised machines. Thanks to that module, they were able to obtain SSH keys to critical servers and they uh, successfully won the penetration test. Which is like $10,000 for the reward, right? Or something like that? Something like that. Uh, well, in this case, I think it was just a corporate exercise or oh, something. Oh, but. yeah, okay. But yeah, so there's a red team versus blue team, and the red team managed to uh, break into the last pass and get the SSH keys uh, because they compromised the machine where the last pass was installed, uh, and uh, that's how they got in. Hmm. Uh, so then they talk about uh, the different parts of LastPass they looked at, and basically diagnose all the problems they found uh, digging into how LastPass works. Um, the first, uh, So they checked three main things. The first one is the client-side attack. So this is a, pois- a post-exploitation scenario. So they've already taken over your computer that you're using LastPass on. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe not root access, but they have some access. They're in as the user to or whatever. The computer okay. that you're running LastPass on. Sure. And once they have that, you know, that's they're going to have pretty good access no matter what your password manager might be, right? At some point, if they have enough access to run a keylogger, then they're going to get the password no matter what, right? Uh, so there's that. Then they also looked at LastPass side attacks. So in the scenario where LastPass employee or some attacker breaks into LastPass's servers or someone does a man in the middle pretending to be LastPass or whatever like that. And then the third one is attack from the outside. So uh, an attacker that is not on the client machine or on the LastPass server and has to try to do things from just anywhere. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so these are a number of different approaches to break in. Uh, you know, they tried just stealing the cookie and using that. Hmm. Uh, they tried abusing the account recovery uh, system to get the key. Sure, a and popular they also, one. Yeah, and they also found a way to bypass the two-factor authentication. Because it turns out once you log in with the two-factor authentication, the code is stored on your computer. You know, uh, I was wondering about that because they have, a, uh, they have a trust the computer for 30 days function. And it mm-hmm. seems like to do that, then yeah, the code would need to be local on the machine. Right, and it's not encrypted with something because I think it, because it's used to then actually decrypt the vault, so they wouldn't have a, a something to encrypt it with necessarily. Yeah, because you got to uh, start somewhere. Yeah, and uh, and so, yeah. Uh, the other thing they found uh, in the vault, uh, it turns out, so the vault is not encrypted as a whole, right? The vault is basically uh, this blob of like you know JSON text or whatever, uh, and then it itself. Uh, or the the usernames and passwords are encrypted, but they're kind of just like encrypted in the middle of the uh, the. Sorry, uh, they're encrypted <laughs> in the uh, middle of the. So like it'll be like website name blah blah blah, and then the username and password are encrypted, but the names of the the URLs and the icons and so on, which you might almost call the metadata encrypted. in a way. Yeah. yeah. So using that, the fave icons are in there and which, everything like that. You know, Oh, look, Rikai has saved passwords for this porn site. Yeah. <laughs> Blong, long, dong. Speaking of pe- save passwords, on, is your phone beeping at you about save passwords? No, my phone is beeping because someone's calling me and I was muting it and forgetting how to do it. <laughs> Don't they, they know the you're doing... When I updated to Android 6. All phones need a button that says doing double tech snap right now. Call again later. They should yeah. just have that built in for us. It does. I just forgot to turn it on before the show. Oh, there always be that. If I do, I usually only set it for two hours and we've been going for longer than that. Yeah. <laughs> <We Anyway. laughs> But yeah, so the URLs are not encrypted, just the usernames and passwords. Right. So if someone's able to get access to the vault, they can tell which shady porn sites you have accounts on. That's a good point. Or if you're registered for, say, a dark web forum or, you know, all that kind of stuff like that. Uh, also, if you reset your password in some site and update the LastPass vault information when prompted for it, the unique reset password URL may be stored in the vault because that's the URL LastPass saw it with. And that may be, uh, depending on the site, may still be useful or might contain sensitive information. Uh, you know, so if the webmaster did a bad job uh, expiring the unique link or something, someone else could use that to set you, reset your password a second time to something they know. Uh, they also found that the credentials uh, are apparently often encrypted in uh, ECB or electronic codebook mode. And that's uh, basically a really weak encryption method that should never be used. If you remember when mm. we looked at those... We showed images of uh, the Tux Penguin encrypted with different encryption algorithms. Oh, yes, a little while and ago. And the good ones, it just looked like static. Yeah. But in ECB, you could still tell it was a penguin. You could tell, yeah. Like, the information was hidden, but the patterns were not. And so, with LastPass using ECB encryption for passwords, 
uh, the, means that they can basically tell when you reuse the same password because uh, the, if you use the same password on two sites, it'll encrypt the same thing in both places. Uh, and this is bad because LastPass can go uh, check any of the existing password dumps out there from, say, when uh, LinkedIn got hacked or whatever, or the uh, was it Gawker with the MD5s? Sure. Uh, and then they could run that against your whole list of ECB encrypted things there and maybe figure out some of your passwords. Hmm. Uh, and then they also wondered what happens if we go to Google and t- search for like extensions.lastpass.loginpws. And you guessed it, people are sharing their encrypted LastPass credentials with the rest of the world without knowing that, that that's what they're doing. You know, they're stuck in paste bins or on forums when they're, people are like asking for um, help getting rid of malware on like, you know, uh, bleepingcomputer.com and so on. Yeah. And so they post like their uh, Firefox prefs.js or whatever and not knowing that it's containing their encrypted credentials and stuff that they probably don't want to expose to people. Jeez. But anyway, the, the blog post goes into much more detail about all the different problems. But uh, the important thing at the end there is they have recommendations for what you as a person should do and then also what LastPass should change about it. Because uh, one of the other things we didn't talk about, if you look at the images there, they have one with a little back and forth with the uh, NSA. This is obviously theoretical, but there it is. Yo, I need access uh, to Trump's email. Sorry, I can't decrypt my vault. I know you can see he has a Gmail account, yes, but I can't decrypt any passwords. Let's misuse some custom underscore JS and append this payload. I'm not comfortable doing that, like you have a choice on the NSA. We've checked, and he did not store his Gmail crededs. Just inject this new account into the vault and include his other and include this other payload. Hmm. Yes. Yeah. So basically, um, there's a, a system in LastPass where you can add a bunch of custom JavaScript that'll be run when you visit a website or something. Yeah. I'm not sure entirely what it's Well, for. it's like you can do things like automatically fill out like a whole bunch of fields in the page and stuff like that. It's yeah, pretty handy. Basically, if it's too complicated for the LastPass automated thing to do mm-hmm. it, you can write your own code to do it. Yeah. The problem is that, yes, someone could, the NSA could inject some code into it and uh, that code would then run. So in the case here, uh, the code they're injecting is, you know, if when he logs into LastPass or logs into Gmail, run this bit of code that will grab the username and password that LastPass has just typed into Gmail and send it to the NSA's web server. Or this other one that will basically inject it whenever he goes to any website and so on. So anyway, uh, the recommendations for regular people are use the binary version of the plugin instead of the JavaScript version because uh, it's safer and doesn't expose the data to the JavaScript. So engine. use the browser plugin. Um, you can have you can use it all with JavaScript. You can go yeah yeah, yeah. use the browser plugin uh, with a little binary thing. Don't store the master password right. You always want to type that in. You don't want to ever tell it to save it or anything like that, right? That makes sense. Uh, make sure you activate the new account recovery over SMS so that someone else can't do account recovery on your account without you mm-hmm. finding out about it mm-hmm. or needing the SMS. Uh, audit your vault for malicious JavaScript payloads. Make sure there's nothing in there that you didn't uh, put in there. Uh, don't use the password reminder system because that will give you information about your password. Uh, make sure you activate two-factor authentication. Consider using the uh, country restrictions saying, you know, I'm never going to log in from China, so anybody who is is not me. Brilliant. Uh, and disable logins via Tor uh, because a lot of bad people are going to use Tor to hide their address, right? That's some so good stuff. Less, if you're definitely not using Tor, you can disable login to your LastPass over Tor. Then the uh, recommendation they have for LastPass is uh, get rid of custom JS because that's a bigger flaw than it is a help. Um, 
instead of encrypting just username and password and then having this vault as a chunk of text, mm-hmm. encrypt the entire vault as one big chunk uh, or maybe several ones for atom- atomicity reasons. But basically so that uh, if someone gets your vault, uh, even though they can't decrypt the username and passwords, you don't want them to know what sites you have usernames and passwords on or that you frequent this dark website or that porn site or whatever. Uh, don't use ECB mode for encryption ever for anything, ever. Anybody. <laughs> Just don't. Um, use a uh, PBKDF2 or a, basically a, a strong um, key derivation function yeah. uh, between the client and LastPass. So instead of just like, you know, the hash of the hash of this or whatever, you do it like 200,000 times or something and make it more difficult. And so it's not the same every time. Uh, use certificate pinning so that it's harder to do a man in the middle. Uh, even if somebody, you know, we've seen that people have managed to get certificates for websites they don't own. So you want to do certificate pinning so that if somebody does, they can't do an attack against LastPass users by mm-hmm. getting a fake certificate. Sure. Uh, embrace open source a bit more. What do you think and about then, that one for the client? Do you think they could do that? Do you think LastPass might actually do that? If their stuff was secure enough on the server side, then I don't see a reason why, you know. At some point, I don't want to use LastPass if the client side isn't open source so I can make sure it's doing what and I'm expecting. You know, after they got purchased by LogMeIn, I would feel a lot better if they would open source it. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to see them do it. Yep. Uh, and then um, jokingly at the bottom, their last one is, add a retroactive cash <laughs> reward bounty program, smiley winky face. Yeah, well, retroactive would be important for this author, I would think. Yes. So <laughs> it's like, <laughs> pay us for this bug bounty. And, it, you know, uh, maybe if it's not even a full bug bounty program, they might uh, maybe yeah, but patch, but just. Uh, they should probably get something together. <laughs> <laughs> huh. So a couple of articles uh, about this, uh, both linked mm-hmm. in the show notes. Yeah, there's some additional coverage of it. And uh, they specifically mentioned at the bottom that you might have seen um, news reports that they hacked LastPass. And it's like, no. Yeah, that, yeah. We just found a way that if we take over your computer, then we might also be able to get access to your vault, which is a lot different than just getting access to your vault when we're not on your computer. Yeah, same if you probably had KeyPass on your machine, I suppose. Uh, but there is now at least some identifiable ways they could do it if they get physical access. So now it's been mapped. That's the important part. And I think the other thing to kind of uh, take away from this is there are other alternatives out there. We did an episode of the Linux Action Show all about this a couple of weeks ago, if you're curious about LastPass alternatives. I look at this and I go, I have recently made the switch, and I kind of missed LastPass, but I would like to see them. I think I'd like to see them go open source before I'm going to trust them anymore. Any other right. thoughts? On? Well, it's like most of the stuff happens on the server side, right? So, but yeah. again, I, yeah. on the server side, all they really have to do is store an encrypted blob. And right. It's not that hard. Right. Yeah. And if the client was fully open source, and that's mostly what the server's doing, you could probably figure out a way to reverse engineer your own server if LogMeIn decided to kill the company or something like that one day. Yeah. I don't know. So, yeah. If you're going to host that, though, Alan, yeah. you know where you should host exactly. it? For something this, uh, for something this critical. It's hard to want to trust something that you can't audit. So you build it on IX Systems Rig. Pow! Yep. You see what I did there? IX Systems. Go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Uh, the ultimate guide to buying a new server for open source is right there. If you've got an, a workload that uses open source software, IX Systems has a rig that works for you. It does, you know, you could, you could probably run Windows on it. 
I never have. Yep. I actually mostly run FreeBSD, FreeNAS, and Linux on iX rigs, and it is really something. You know, their expertise in the hardware and software divisions combined with their customer service is really outrageous. And I love, I love their outreach. Their seriously steadfast commitment to the outreach to the community. They just posted a Lisa 2015 recap where they went last mm-hmm. week. Uh, didn't you just mention Lisa last episode? Uh, yeah, it's the Large Systems Administrator Conference. Yeah. Uh, so IX was there, OVS, uh, and they helped staff the FreeBSD Foundation booth as well. So pretty cool. Some uh, write-up about the, the event, if you're curious about the uh, Large Systems Conference. And uh, it looks like it was a pretty good conference. And yep. some interest there shown in TrueNAS and FreeNAS. Yep. That's pretty cool. Groff was also there. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, yeah, you can actually see him in the picture there. Uh, which one? First one with uh, Drew and Depp. Yeah. Or not Drew and, uh, Drew and Ann. Oh, there he is right there. There yep. he is right there in the corner. Boom. Groff Goat spotted. Goat spotted. That's great. Check it out at IX Systems. They also have their Mission Complete contest, which yes. uh, is ongoing now. Get your war stories in there. I'd love to see some text fan, yes. TechSnap fans featured. IX exactly. Systems has great systems and storage systems built around open source, leveraging all of the best technologies and deep hardware partnerships. They've been around for a long time. I wish I knew about them sooner. Try them out. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap to read more and support this show. And a big thanks to IX Systems for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Rick High points out that our guest from last week's BSD Now was also presenting at that conference. Oh, yeah. Uh, it might be because Rukai might have stolen a picture of him doing that. To, <laughs> that he knows. <laughs> uh, yes. No, to, he, he stole the picture from that conference of uh, George Wilson speaking for the, to replace yes. when Skype broke down. During oh, the I video. Know. oh, I know. Oh, I know. Oh, I know. That was actually a pretty clever spot to get it because he probably looked very pro- pronounced Acadian. You know, he's like but, and up also, on stage. He had a black background which yeah. fit with Skype. Oh, yeah, it does. And so it, and it edged in nicely. That's why we call him the ninja beard now. Yes. Uh-huh. You know. It, yeah, it's something. I, I agree to the ninja bearding. So can I tell you about something that is just continuing to be a thorn in my side? It, it Maybe it's because I just hate to see open source projects fade away, but this is driving me crazy. The uh, Google Mail client built into the ASOP open source, you know, Android OS, mm-hmm. that mail client built in there. Guess what, Alan? Vulnerable to some mess. And you combine those with some other vulnerabilities, and you got yourself quite the cocktail. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the, the basically email client that uh, the client that was just called email in uh, Android AOSP uh, has an HTML injection vulnerability you can use to take over the machine. Um, so basically, allows a remote attacker to be able to send a crafted email with a payload that redirects the user to a target URL as soon as they open the email. And so this will just as soon as you open the email, no control, it just opens a URL. And uh, and it, it can, I believe, depending on how you set it up, it can even like start the, uh, downloading stuff in the background without any kind of yep. user notice. Yeah, this issue is not related with the email provider configured on the app, but with the incorrect filter of potentially dangerous tags in the client side. Uh, researchers sent an email with an HTML tag uh, meta using the HTTP equiv refresh thing, like that old way of doing redirects mm. from like the 90s. <laughs> it uh, caused people's browsers to fire off and do that. Um, and so then at the page you send them to, you could have, you know, a fake email thing, a phishing scan. Right. Enter your credentials to reauthorize your account. Or exploit a vulnerability in the browser. Which there happens to be some. They say, uh, other vectors like using, uh, intent based URI is also possible. Uh, so you actually just have binary encoded data or whatever. And, and then just this week from the mobile pwn to own conference, 
an exploit was showcased that exposed the vulnerabilities in the JavaScript V8 engine in Chrome, where a user just needs to browse to a page and it installs an APK without any kind of user interaction. Yikes. Uh, so now I send you an email, it automatically opens your browser and goes to a web page that automatically downloads an APK and installs it without asking you. Yeah. Uh, so during the uh, own demo of the V8 vulnerability, security researcher Guang Gong uh, showed how easy it is to take advantage of Android devices. Uh, so the big thing here is that the um, Google AOSP problem with the email client is not really a priority for them to fix because in Android 5 and 6, they've removed that application, uh, which kind of was a bit of consternation for me when I upgraded my phone. I was like, there's no email app anymore? They're like, well, you can suck your other emails into Gmail. It's like, I don't want to do that. Right. Uh, partly because my Gmail is separate and used for specific types of things, and my email is used for the other types of things. Uh, so I'm actually using uh, K9, the mail client, because it also yeah. supports uh, GPG, yeah. uh, which is important for my FreeBSD email address because almost all my emails are signed. That's like, that was the same one I did when I wanted GPG on my phone. Uh, also, it handles multiple accounts nicely because uh, I have my mm -hmm. work account and my FreeBSD account, mm -hmm. uh, which before I didn't have on my phone because I don't use email on my phone very often. But when I'm at a conference, it's very nice for organizing, you know, meeting with other people to have my FreeBSD email on my phone uh, and not have to tell people. Normally, you email me at this address, but I'm on my phone, so email me over here. Uh, so I can't understand. But yeah, so the email app is gone in Android 5 and 6. And so I don't know if Google is going to even bother fixing this. No, in fact, speed. I think the, in, the, in the poster, they say they, when they contact Google, they say they don't have any plan to fix it. But you mm. see, what, what is the issue is there's, you have multiple vulnerabilities that you can stack here. So, like at the Mobile Pwn to Own conference, they talked about that vulnerability in the Chrome V8 you just mentioned where they downloaded yeah, the so APK the, in the that background. One, yeah, the, the Chrome vulnerability is That's on Android 5 also applies to 6. Yep, and 6. And will get fixed. Right. Uh, but, but the AOSP thing won't. But see, those kind of things, they crop up, they pop up. Meanwhile, the stuff in AOSP doesn't get fixed, and you combine those two vulnerabilities. You send somebody an email with HTML, it opens up in Chrome, and they install, they install software. The demo, the guy installed like a BMX racing game on somebody's phone on stage, and then it, there was no user interaction at all. Right. Uh, the bigger problem is if you're still on, it, basically, if you have a phone that's on Android for right. or something, right. It's from a manufacturer that's taken AOSP and did their own things to it. Even if Google fixed the vulnerability in the email client, you what are the probably, chances you yeah. would actually get it? Absolutely. It's very, it's very unlikely. And, you know, I, what, I, what I worry about more is the scenario of um, a bunch of zombie phones sitting in people's pockets. Like, yeah, they're on, they're on wireless or they're on Wi-Fi, they, and they don't have very big CPUs. But if you get enough of them doing something, they could cause havoc. They could do something, and uh, it's to me it looks like, it feels like we are building this huge, huge, huge number of devices out there that you could stack multiple surefire vulnerability bets, surefire vulnerabilities in every phone that has email on it, uh, Android 4.0 or lower. And if you got Chrome on there, then you got like just just it just feels yeah, like it's so ripe for picking. They could all decide to do a denial of service attack against the cell phone network itself. That's what exactly what I was picturing, and that would that would do massive disruption. You do that during a terrorist attack or something like that, and you are crippling communications infrastructure. Exactly. That is why I get on this case, and I don't like I don't think anybody in our audience is going to be primarily impacted by this because it's very unlikely for very long they're going to have a phone that insecure in our audience. But you, you go a few steps outside of that, and I think it's going to be a very common pace, place. And if something can happen without them being doing anything other than opening an email or getting a link in a chat, 
then it, you know, it could be very easy and very quickly spread. Yep. That's my warning. Now somebody yeah, clip that out, and when that turns, when that when that what actually happens, you can play that and be like, "Look, he totally predicted it." <laughs> yeah. uh, so the the AOS AOSP email app is available on all versions of Android up to KitKat, which is four point four point four. If you have ice cream sandwich like four and upwards, uh, you should migrate your accounts from the AOSP email app to either the Gmail app or some third party app. Uh, like K-9. And apparently, uh, if you even if you're still on four or whatever. Your Gmail app will have been upgraded to at least version five and won't be vulnerable. And if you're doing something else, use K9. Yeah, that's that's the uh, way to go. But yeah, it kind of it makes sense now why Google's transitioning more and more things to just be apps on the phone, so they can just update them uh, to the point where I'm not sure how to solve the problem. I don't know. We yeah. should have never let phone companies customize the OS. Yeah, but then they they would have just built their own, and it we. If you think we have fragmentation now, imagine if there was Samsung OS and LG OS. Yeah. still kind of feels that way, though. A little bit. All I guess right. kind of we basically do. We just have Linux distros instead of... <laughs> <laughs> Probably would have been all iPhones if somebody didn't come along and do something desperate like Google. This would have been iPhones everywhere, Alan. <laughs> um, any other thoughts on that story? Uh, nope. Okay, well, while we're speaking about phones, let's talk about Ting, sponsor of the TechSnap program. Go to techsnap.ting.com to support the show and get a $25 discount off your first device or get $25 in service credit. Now, if you're listening to this before Black Friday, I heard a rumor they're going to have 30% off some of their top devices. They're going to have discounts on their SIM cards, free shipping, all kinds of things. So go to techsnap.ting.com to, to get started. Now is better than ever. Ting is Brilliant. It's $6 for the line. As many lines as you want, $6. For a small business, think about that for a second. You want to give phones to your employees, but you don't have a huge budget for cell phones and contracts and all that kind of crap? $6, and it's just their usage. All right, well, you got a team of people, and for eight hours out of the day, they're using Wi-Fi. Guess what? Your bill is going to be ridiculously low. I've got three phones. I'm paying like 40 bucks a month most months. It's amazing. No contract, no other termination fee. They have a GSM and CDMA network, so you get to pick whichever is going to work better for you or move in between if you've got kind of like a nicer phone like the Nexus 5 and up. They're really great devices over on the Ting network too. In fact, one of the things I enjoy about Ting is they have the whole range. So depending on kind of what you want, like if you just want something to make phone calls, they have devices like the Ansatel One Touch Fling. $63, no contract, no other termination fee. It's an unlocked device that you own outright. And then you just pay for what you use. Nice little classy looking device if you just need something simple to make phone calls. And then they also have all of the great smartphones. Like I just picked here the Moto X second gen, $299, unlocked, no contract, you own it, pay for what you use. That's a great frickin' phone for a great frickin' price. And with Black Friday, they're going to have even better deals. So go to techsnap.ting.com to get started. While you're there, too, you could also check out the Ting blog. Have you... A cord cutter or are you considering cutting the cord this is something you might want to check out their latest blog post kind of breaks down what the different kinds of internet speeds are going to get you as far as streaming content and the whole mess of what broadband is where it's classified at what the FCC's role is where gigabit comes in how that's structured how that affects streaming this is a massive write-up and it's extremely interesting if you're a cord cutter or thinking about becoming one it's going to answer a few of your questions. So check out their blog first by going to techsnap.ting.com to support this show. Then you can play around, see if they interest you. I encourage you to try out their savings calculator to see how much you might save. You'd be pretty surprised. I've saved over $2,000 in the last two years. That's why I say that. 
TechSnap.ting.com, and also great for a small business as well. A great way to get phones for the holidays, TechSnap.ting.com, and a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Every time I see a barcode device hooked up to like a, a Windows XP computer at like a checkout station, like a Target or something like that, I think to myself, is that just a human interface device? Because when I was working at a school district, we had barcode scanners, we hooked up to the computers, and they just showed up as keyboard emulators, and this was 10 years ago. And they just, mm-hmm. whatever they scan, they just beep, 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 entered into the keyboard as text. And so I've always wondered, like, what could you do with that? Well, Helen, this first, or actually our second story, is kind of blowing my mind in this regard. I'm really glad you found this yep. one. Yeah, so this is called Bad Barcode. <laughs> uh, and uh, so, yeah, at uh, PanSec, which is a Pan American uh, security conference, or yep. uh, Pan Asian. But yeah, PanSec uh, 2015 in Tokyo, uh, researchers um, with a, at a lab there demonstrated a number of attacks using poison barcodes uh, scanned by numerous uh, keyboard wedge barcode scanners to open a shell on a machine and virtually type control codes. Yep, that's right. Uh, so yeah, uh, you know, a barcode is normally just numbers, uh, and you scan it, and the little keyboard wedge, they're called, uh, basically types it in. Like, uh, at one BSD conference, we actually learned that some of the point-of-sale systems in Japan are literally all written in shell scripts. No kidding. That is a mess and of so scripts. The, the, B car- the barcode scanner just types the numbers in and then it yeah. you know, references its database, looks up how much the thing is, and adds the numbers together. It's pretty easy to do. You know, Alan, when I was in Denver, I saw a barcode scanner that ran Android. It looked like Android 2, and you know, you just bleep, and you scan it. It still goes in as a keyboard input, but the actual barcode scanner had an Android touchscreen on the back of it. How about that? Is that crazy mm-hmm. or what? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the attack, dubbed Bad Barcode, is relatively simple to carry out. The researchers behind the project said it's difficult to pinpoint whether the scanner or the host systems need to be patched or both to actually solve the problem. Uh, so we don't know what the bad guys might do, but Bad Barcode can execute any command on the host system or implant a Trojan. Uh, and they apparently awarded a $100,000 payout from Microsoft's uh, mitigation bypass bounty for uh, using ASLR and DEP bypasses. Wow. So these are serious computer researcher guys. So they say basically you can do anything with bad barcode. Uh, so the researcher said his team was able to exploit the fact that most barcodes uh, contain not only numeric and alphanumeric characters, but also full ASCII characters depending on the protocol being used. Uh, however, barcodes, get, so the system where you actually have barcodes can usually represent things other than numbers. Almost every barcode on a product, though, only contains numbers and maybe letters. Right, okay. But the actual... But the, the spec for how you build the barcode yeah. usually allows you to do anything. Like any character, right? Yeah. So the barcode scanner, meanwhile, is essentially a keyboard emulator. And if you support protocols such as code 128, uh, which supports ASCII control codes, an attacker could create a barcode that is read and opens a shell on the computer, and uh, which commands are sent. So you basically program it on a Windows computer to be like Windows key R... And then type some command and press enter, and it'll run it, right? Yeah. Uh, so during the presentation, uh, control and then plus uh, commands map to ASCII codes and can be used to trigger hotkeys, uh, which register with the control plus yeah. prefix to line up and uh, dialogues such as open, open file, file, save yeah. file, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Yeah. An attacker could use these hotkeys to browse the computer's file system, launch a browser, execute programs, and take over the machine. Uh, Researchers suggest that barcode scanner manufacturers not uh, not enable additional features beyond standard protocols by default, uh, nor should they transmit ASCII control codes to the host by default. 
So yeah, either a firmware update or something for them so that they, by default, will never send anything that's not a letter or a number or something. To prevent so watch, I'm watching the video here, Alan, and they're, set, they're scanning a series of barcodes. Now, they've opened up the run dialog box on this Windows laptop, and now, mm-hmm. by flipping through different barcodes, they've opened up a command prompt, and they're typing in commands and running various stuff. Uh, you know what I'm thinking? This is a great way to automate interacting with the computer for people that don't know what the hell they're doing. All right, when it's time to do this task, scan this barcode. This is a great way to automate computer interaction. <laughs> This is brilliant. I think uh, if you guys want to see the video, it's linked in the show notes. It was uh, from Twitter. Uh, and essentially, he made a book of barcodes, and he flips through them, and each barcode issues a different command. And so he's able to just sort of boop, 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 roll through the barcodes until he's got yep. the command prompt up. <laughs> I think it's So now neat. imagine now you just get a piece of paper and drag it across the self-checkout thing at the Walmart and... Yeah, you know. this should be in a movie. This is well, this is especially nice. those self checkout things have changed dispensers, right? You could probably make it spit out coins. Hmm. 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 I'm telling you, we're in the wrong business. This podcasting thing's never going to make us as rich as this actual hacking thing. Yeah. <laughs> say uh, hosts in the Internet of Things environment, meanwhile, should think twice about using barcode scanners that emulate keyboards, and should disable system hotkeys and so on. Which is like all of them emulate keyboards, and none of them probably disable system hotkeys. Yeah. So you definitely want some better firmware on there that uh, doesn't allow it to send bad input. Hmm. And check the show notes, because Alan has the full slides in the show notes, and they have a cool picture of the Starship Enterprise. Barcode, how to hack a Starship with a piece of paper. Well, I think that's legit, so uh, cool. You can check out the slides in the show notes. Mm -hmm. All right, well, I want to tell you about our next sponsor. That's DigitalOcean. That's where I go to set up my Linux servers on demand. They have hourly pricing too, which is pretty neat. I'm going to tell you about that in a second, but first, I want to arm you with absolute knowledge. We have a promo code you can use, SNAPOcean. SnapOcean will give you a $10 credit at DigitalOcean. End script. SnapOcean. Use that. Get a $10 credit. Try out their $5 rig. Two months for free. DigitalOcean is awesome. Go set up a server up in the sky, or like they like to call it, the cloud. They have droplets. These are virtual servers you can deploy in less than 55 seconds. Pricing plans start only $5 a month for 512 megabytes of RAM, 20 gigabyte SSD. They do SSDs throughout their entire infrastructure, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. That's the $5 level right there. Now, uh, they just move them up really, really nicely, and you can either uh, adjust between hourly or monthly pricing on their website to see the different pricing plans. So, for example, their most popular plan is their $10 a month plan with one gigabyte of memory, one core, and 30 gigs of SSD, and two terabytes of transfer. I actually, I think for the most part, have deployed the $5 rigs. The one where I kind of went big was with the Minecraft server, but I want to I just kind of uh, tantalize you for a moment with the hourly suggestion. Think about this. Big big launch day, want to scale on demand? Use DigitalOcean straightforward API to spin up a few droplets and use their hourly pricing. They have Ubuntu, Debian, Fedora, CentOS, they have CoreOS, and FreeBSD that you can spin up on DigitalOcean. Great tutorials to help you manage all of it. A really slick, straightforward interface, but yet still very competent and powerful. And like I mentioned, that API, which is more than just like a, a checkbox on their feature. It really is a core platform feature. DigitalOcean has technical writers, too, to help clean up their documentation and make sure everything's great. They've paid their, con- their community when they contribute that kind of documentation. That's a really important thing to DigitalOcean. So check them out. Go over to DigitalOcean.com and use the promo code SNAPOcean and go spin up a free BSD server. Why not? You hear Alan yeah, talk about it all the time. The, the hourly pricing, uh, Chris Morton I've actually talked about, is like, oh, if, if you wanted to, say, build packages for uh, custom 
install a BSD or, you know, I just have that little MIPS device now and it's I kind of want to build a bunch of MIPS packages. You know, I personally have access to lots of big servers, but most people don't. And if you want to build a bunch, you could rent one of the really big instances for like three or four hours or something and then just delete yeah. it when you're done. Yep. And all of a sudden you have all these packages that built, you know, way, way, way faster than you could build them on your desktop. Uh, you got, you know, a big fat machine with lots of CPU, hugely fast networking to download all the stuff to do it, and it's all SSDs. Yeah, and another way, like Arikai's pointing out in the chat room, you could really bring it together, is you could get a nice beefy DigitalOcean droplet to run Minecraft. And if you look at the prices of ho Minecraft hosting, it's cheaper just to go DigitalOcean most times. But you could use like their API to just turn it on when you're playing, turn it off when you're done, pay for it while you use it. It's really cool. I love DigitalOcean. There's a lot of different economical ways to spin up your own rig with all SSDs for the disk I.O. It's slick. Just use our promo code SNAPOcean to keep this show going and get yourself that $10 credit. Hey, Alan, while we're shucking and jiving about that free BSD, rumor has it there's an episode of BSD Now coming out that people are going to want to check out. Yes. Uh, this week's episode, which will probably come out about the time uh, this does-ish, um, we have a second interview with Brian Cantrell, uh, who was our most popular interview so far, and uh, he will be talking about uh, problems with the Linux APIs and uh, just general storytelling and all kinds of good stuff. <laughs> I love these. Gonna that the the Linux API is definitely those APIs are something that could be ranted mm -hmm. about. I, I yes. I'm gonna have to watch that episode. So that'll be uh, one seventeen of the BSD Now program. You can mm -hmm. go check that out at JupiterBroadcasting.com. All right, Alan. Well, with the news all done, guess what? It's time for the TechSnap feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website or starting a thread in our subreddit, links.techsnap. Nope, techsnap.reddit.com. So, Alan, our first email comes in from Tim, and he's got a bare metal restore question. He says, having the last few years moved from a purely Windows network to one that is now mostly Linux, with a couple of Windows machines and, of course, a little BSD love, I transitioned my home server from Windows Home Server 2001, or I'm sorry, 2011, to FreeNAS. Microsoft killed that product. Uh, while I have been very happy with this move, I still haven't sufficiently implemented a new backup plan. Currently, I'm relying on a lot of manual backups and external hard drives. My favorite feature of Windows Home Server 2011 was that not only could I do incremental backups, all the Windows clients over the network could, but it also allowed total bare metal restores of all these clients, meaning in the case of drive failure, I could get someone's machine and backup running extremely fast. It actually did like nightly imaging, and it would do incremental images over the network is how it worked. In my um, search for replacement backup tools, there were plenty of options for incremental differential file backups all the way down to the basics like rsync. But they don't allow a bare metal restore. You have to reinstall the OS software, etc., then restore files from backup. There are always ways of doing better, bare metal restores using imaging software like Clonezilla, but that requires a new large image for every backup. In looking for they did an incremental. Maybe. I guess it's not really possible. In looking for something that handles everything I want, I have really only come across Bacula. It seems to allow incremental backups with bare metal restore and could run on my FreeNAS server. But my question is, is there any options worth considering here? Do you really think Bacula is worth learning? It certainly doesn't seem to be easy to backup restore software. I've used as some of the stuff I've used previously. Just not only in setup, but also in restore of Windows and Linux machines. And this is an area I obviously don't want to run into too many issues. I'm willing to learn, but is it worth the time of a busy home user to invest in Bacula? Or should I go a, diff or should I go a different direction? Yeah, so incremental image-based backup, I don't even know how those ever worked. 
Yeah, Microsoft just, did a hell of a one with Windows Home Server. It did work. Right. So, like, did it have to constantly communicate over the network hashes of blocks? So I had to read the entire hard drive every time. Yeah, right? and there was a client installed on the Windows machine that actually ran the, the function, I think, and then sent it right. over but the network did, for did storage. Did it have to scan the entire hard drive every time? I guess. I mean, well, I mean, the Windows kernel does do well, di- guess, a disk yes. event. Right, tracking. but so in this case, I imagine it's the Windows one wasn't actually an image backup, like raw looking at the bits on the hard drive. It would just integrate into NTFS and know what to do kind of a thing. But it had the same effect where you could boot off of a CD that came with the Windows home server and restore your whole machine uh, uh, with a bare drive over the network. Uh, So Bacula, I've set it up. It's not all that hard to set up. It takes a little bit. And compared to, I mean, it is night and day, though, compared to just install one client, you're done. You know, like a little thing. Right. Um, The nice thing it has is when you do a restore, you can do, uh, you log into the console and server, whatever, and you be like, I want to restore these files on that client, enter, and the files will just start showing up on that machine. And you don't even have to, you don't even have to be at the machine that you want to restore to. Uh, Now, for the bare metal, that's a little more complicated. Um, uh, But back in the day, it does have features like TOS and AES encryption and so on. But yeah, uh, for home, it might be. For less than 10 machines, it's probably not worth the effort for Bacula. Yeah, that um, is tough to say. I wonder... Yeah, so if, you know, Clonezilla does the image, but yeah, there's not really a way to do an incremental image. I'm trying to remember one thing that like, I recommend... No matter what you did, you would have to scan the entire hard drive every time. You might be able to you know, do some smarter deduping or something on the receiving side, but... What about mm-hmm. just... So I'm trying to remember. I'm looking. Uh, so I've, rec- I've recommended Mondo Rescue before. It's still it's still alive. They had an update uh, a couple of months ago, and Mondo Rescue is a live environment that does image backups. I don't think it does incremental, but I'm not sure. I was just checking it out, and the thing I like about this is it does create bare metal recovery. There might be a way right. to just if you have, have a full system. image of the drive that works. The two main problems are the machine has to be offline the entire time you yes. take the image. Yes, that is and the thing. B that. It's not incredible. That is truly that is true. That is a thing. I should I sure do like the I sure do like Mondo Rescue though. Um, it is nice because you can give people just a here's a recovery set. Have it here's a here you know just here's this this is your recovery yeah. set for your machine and takes it back to how I gave it to you the day you took it from me, which is like if you're sending machines yeah. up. Yeah, the biggest kind of problem with the image based backup like that is that it, you can't automate really turning the computer off and booting up off the disk and doing that, but. As a compromise, you could have an image-based backup, which will give you the OS and the software, and then your regular type backup with Bacular, R-Sync, or whatever, um, of the files, right? Like your documents directory and stuff. So even if you're restoring from an image uh, that's a month or two old, as long as you can then overlay the newer files on top of it, all you're missing is maybe any new software that's been installed or, you know, have to reinstall a bunch of Windows updates or something. But in general, you will still have all your documents and stuff because they're backed up, say, hourly or something, whereas the full disk image backup is done less often. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, And I think the real answer is, if it's possible, uh, separate the data and the operating system so that way, I mean, really... Yeah, like, the way my machine at home works is all the important files live on a sandbox that's actually on my FreeBSD server. And then all that's on the computer is the operating system and some uh, applications. So if it were to all die, I would just reinstall Windows, reinstall OpenOffice and Firefox or whatever, and, and then 
open up you know, even like my Firefox profile lives on the network share. So all my settings yeah. would just come there's, back. There's, there's multiple benefits to separating your data and your applications like that and your OS. There's It's not just backup recovery. There's there's lots of benefits. So it might be worth, maybe, maybe it's not so much finding the right tool, but it's more about reconsidering the way you have this structure too. There but are yeah. multiple ways to crack in, this particular in, Incremental image backup like that would be awesome. Uh, mm-hmm. Automated way, over the, the network. The only way I can think of doing that is if the machines had no hard drives and iSCSI booted off of Zvols yeah. off your file server. Yeah, there you go. And then you just ZFS right. snapshot. There you them. go. <laughs> hey, there you go, Alan. There you go. Yeah. Um, It'll save you. You put all the hard drives on one computer instead. Speaking of uh, ZFS, uh, then when the power supply in that computer goes out, then you yeah, <laughs> there's that. You buy, buy a proper machine from IX for that. Smash is, power sm- Smash here's got our. Jeez, uh, look at this thing. Mm-hmm. Smash has our uh, ZFS question of the day. I think, or maybe it, it might be. Uh, he says, uh, he says, yes, another freaking ZFS question. Hey, Jen, Smash here. So I just set up a free NAS 9.3 box. Uh, with uh, four three-terabyte drives in a RAID Z2 config, and I wanted to see if the available space was correct. He says, because this is what it's given me with the following available space. The volume is 9.4 terabytes with a data set of 5 terabytes. I was expecting a volume of 12 terabytes with a data set of 5.45 terabytes. Does this look correct? He says, I know I could have done a set of mirrored drives, but I was afraid of losing two disks that could fail in that array. This box only has a quantity of four SATA ports. Uh, yikes, and thanks again for the amazing uptime. What do you think, Alan? What's, what, you're looking at that. Does it strike you? Um, well, I don't know what the volume it, number he was expecting. What, what's the, so he was expecting a 12 terabyte volume with a 5.45 terabyte capacity. And he's got right. a 9.5 terabyte volume with 509 I don't terabytes. know where the volume number comes from or what he's expecting. And he's got there, four 3 terabyte hard drives in. Right. Well, in RAID Z2, mm-hmm. uh, he's only going to get two of those hard drives of usable space. Right? So, yes, he was only expecting about, you know, six terabytes. And remember, you have to divide that. Right? Bytes, kilobytes, megabytes. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Terabytes. Do it, Alan. Do it. Yeah. So, that he, was ex- uh, he got exactly what he should have got. Or no, sorry, he was expecting the 4.54. Yes. Uh, but that assumes that every single byte is available f- uh, for your data set. And because of metadata and so on, right. ZFS takes some of that space. Exactly. Uh, and it reserves some of the space so that even when you run out of space, you can still delete things because that's the thing in ZFS. Uh, but yeah, so the volume, I'm not sure where you're getting that number from. Uh, what the, I don't, when I think of volumes, I think Zvol. So I don't, I don't like when FreeNAS uses that word, but it's what it's used mm-hmm. since before, and it's what every other NAS uses. So it makes sense. But uh, in that number, you have to remember that, unlike a typical RAID five or six or something, in ZFS, initially you have all of the space. Just every time you write a block, you're writing that many more blocks. If that makes sense. That actually makes uh, perfect the sense. other thing to remember is that the way padding works in ZFS. So when you write a block to ZFS, it's always in multiples of um, 1 plus n, where n is your amount of redundancy. So in your RAID Z2, that means that every bunch of data you write to the disk must be divisible by three sectors. right? And if you're using 4K sectors, uh, then that will be you know, 12K. right? So if you write, say, 8K of data, uh, so that'll be 8K of data 
plus 8K of parity will be 16K. That's not divisible by three sectors because that's four sectors, right? Two data sectors and two parity sectors. So it'll actually pad it to six sectors. So now that 8K of data you wrote is actually taking up um, more space, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's uh, 24K of space, even though you only wrote 8K of data. Whereas if you actually wrote 16K of data, which would be four sectors, and then two of parity, that's divisible by six. So that will only take the expected 24K. And so writing very small blocks will cause your space to get consumed differently. Uh, so with ZFS, all you have to care about is the amount of free space, and it's slightly less predictable than you might hope. Yeah. Okay. Uh, if you're writing just files, it's not so bad. If you're doing like a Zvolve for a VM, you could be uh, very confused by the result because the default block size for Zvolve is 8K, and that's going to be really inefficient if you're allocating 24K for every 8K. You're expecting it to take 50% overhead, and it's actually going to have you know, more. Or you're expecting 100% overhead, right? And you're actually getting 200% overhead, hmm. right? Mm. So you're writing 2K mm-hmm. or two blocks. Mm-hmm. You expect it to take four, but it actually takes six. Whereas if you actually wrote four blocks, you'd expect it to take six, and it takes six. Are you ready for L's question? Yeah. L writes in with a couple questions. He says, I set up a free NAS box with four three-terabyte Western Digital Reds in RAID Z2. Now, I bought one more three terabyte hard drive. How can I add it to my pool? I searched on the web and people say I have to add another four three terabyte HD again and I cannot add a single hard drive at a time. Is this correct? It means I need to buy three more three terabyte hard drives? Can I buy different sizes? And then the second question would be, well, actually, do you want to answer that and I'll read it? Yeah, okay. So, uh, yeah, you basically have to buy more hard drives. they (laughs) They don't have to be the same size and it doesn't necessarily have to be four. You could just add two as a mirror set, although it's best to not mix. When you have four hard drives, I'm not sure why you picked a RAID Z2 over mirrors. If you had done two hard drives as one mirror, two more hard drives as a second mirror, then all you would have to do is buy two more hard drives and add a third mirror, and then later two more hard drives as a fourth mirror. And each two drives have to be the same size, but the rest of them don't. Uh, but because you went with RAID Z, you know, the best practice would be yes, to, get, to grow four drives at a time each time. Uh, but you don't have to. So you could just get two drives and add a mirror to your RAID Z, but that'll be not ideal. Strange. Yeah. Okay, second question. What's the difference between a snapshot and a backup? My snapshot takes a few seconds, one, maybe two minutes tops, but I feel like an hour well, to no, see. Sing- uh, a snapshot should take zero seconds or one second. Okay, but okay. I feel like, uh, but I take like, a, it takes like one hour to sync to my external hard drive. If a snapshot is so fast, what is it doing? And where is FreeNAS Where is FreeNAS storing these snapshots? And if I need those, how can I browse the files from the snapshot? Right. So when you take a snapshot, ZFS doesn't have to do anything. It's not making copies or anything. All it has to do is say, oh, I've now created a snapshot. And so now each block that's on your hard drive uh, is there. And then when you create a snapshot, the snapshot says, I own every block older than now when you created whatever the time was when you created the snapshot and when you delete a file zfs goes and looks and says is there anybody using this block now right if you have no snapshots and you delete a file then it goes by and like nope nobody's using this block anymore i can get rid of it and then it comes back as free space and you delete a file you get free space that's what you expect if you do have a snapshot when you delete the files zfs will be oh you deleted this block, but this snapshot is still using it. So I'm going to not delete that and keep that copy for the snapshot. So it just kind of hides goes, it. If you overwrite a file, um, 
it, ZFS will never write in the same over top of the original copy of the file. It'll write a new copy of the parts of the file that you changed hmm. over in a different spot. Mm-hmm. Then it would normally free up the original file once the new one's already written out. But if you have a snapshot, it won't. It'll keep both the old copy and the new copy. And that's how the snapshot works. Uh, and yes, if you have having snapshots, when you take a backup, if you take the backup from the snapshot, the advantage is a snapshot takes zero seconds to create and it'll be every file will be exactly from that one that second. It's guaranteed that all the files will be exactly how they were that second. So when you take a backup, even though it takes, like you said, hours to sync to your external hard drive, you'll have all the copies from the same second. All the different files will be from the same second. If you back up your live system, all those files will be changing while you're backing mm-hmm. them up. And now you have you know, these two files that depend on each other, one from before and one from after, and it'll be all horrible. It might not even work. Uh, so... There's that. Uh, but a snapshot doesn't help you from a backup because if a bunch of your hard drives fail or something, then it's gone, right? The, the snapshot's not a backup because it's stored in the same place as your original copy, and so it's mm. not a backup. Mm-hmm. Um, and then how to access it? There's a hidden .zfs directory at the root of each ZFS file system. So if you just go into that .zfs slash snapshot slash the name of the snapshot, you will see a version of that entire file system with all the files exactly how they were at the second you took the snapshot. Perfect. You can also mount the snapshots manually. So you could mount the snapshot as you know to a new directory somewhere and back it up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, yeah. For syncing to your external hard drive, if you make the, the storage on your external hard drive also a ZFS pool, you can do ZFS replication and it, then it can do the incremental stuff, and it'll just be faster than doing rsync or something like that because rsync has to read every file to see if it's changed. Because ZFS, each block actually knows, it has what's called a birth time. It knows exactly when it was written. So when ZFS goes to do replication, it can just create, go over the whole hard drive's metadata real quick and be like, all right, give me every file that's changed since this time but before this time. And that's everything you need for the incremental. It just chucks them at the drive, and it's so much faster. Because uh, this actually came up uh, when the FreeBSD project was migrating some servers from California to New York. They were backing up everybody's home directory, and they were using rsync to do it. And it was taking more than 24 hours for each run. So even after they had copied all the data, it was only a couple hundred gigs, I think, or maybe 500 gigs or something like that. But when they ran rsync a second time, it didn't, there were not very many changes to copy, but it had to read every file to make sure it was exactly the same as it was last time, right? And so it took 24 hours to go through the whole thing. And then we're like, well, we're kind of stuck now because <laughs> um, we don't want to block everybody from having access for a whole day just to copy it to the other place, right? Uh, and so that's the kind of thing where ZFS replication could really come in handy. Of course, the problem was that their story, the original storage wasn't ZFS. It is now on the new machine, but the source wasn't ZFS, and that mm-hmm. caused these problems. Right. Uh, so yeah, um, your snapshots are not backup because you can accidentally delete a snapshot, and because it's on the same hard drive as the original copy. Or actually, the snapshot isn't even a second copy, right? It's just making sure you don't disturb the old copies of the file. Mm-hmm. Snapshots, right? so, don't consider them to be a backup because they're on the right, same drive. Because well, not just that, because they're not even a copy of the drive, right. right? Right. Like, if you have a file and you have snapshots of it from five different times, that block is only stored on the disk one time. Mm-hmm. And so that one sector goes bad on the disk, all of your snapshot copies are gone. 
So, you know, like we talked about, if there's not three copies of it, it doesn't actually exist. So you want the original one and maybe the snapshot or whatever. That's not a copy of the original. Then you need a backup, and then you also need another backup. Mm-hmm. All right, Smash, double hitter today. He says, I have a great network software tool you have to check out. Hey, gents, I heard Popey talk about it on his Ubuntu podcast and want to send it to you in case you want to talk about it on the show. I think it's hilarious that Comcast Inc. is so bad that a network problem-inducing package was named after the company. Check it out. He links it to the GitHub. Comcast is a tool designed to simulate common network problems like latency, bandwidth restrictions, dropped, reordered, and corrupted packets. And you can plug it in, and you can even give it like preset conditions, like simulate an edge or GPRS connection or dial-up or satellite. <laughs> you can give it the different Comcast conditions you want to purposely mess up your wireless connection or your network testing connection. And you can see there's actually some legitimate use for this too, right? Because mm-hmm. if you're uh, testing... You know, like an app or something like that? Yeah, and so this is written in Go, and then I love that they have this section near the bottom. I don't trust you. This code yeah. sucks. I hate Go, et cetera. It's like, right. well, it turns out you can already do this in most operating systems. So they show how to do it in IP tables on Linux, although uh, they can only do a couple things there. And then they use like, TC. I'm not sure what that is. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And then for BSD, they actually show DummyNet, which is uh, the FreeBSD way of doing it in uh, Mac OS cool. imported dummy net as well. Yes. And so I've written an article in the FreeBSD Journal about doing this. Because uh, you can do a bunch of, you know, simulate delay, simulate packet loss, uh, limit bandwidth, whatever you want to do. Hmm. Very cool. Uh-huh. Uh, so, yeah. And okay. then, yeah, they have some profiles here or even just a handy table you can use if you're doing it any other way. You can see what the different uh, yeah. Yeah. setups would be. You know, if it's like, oh, if you're on dial up, you need this many seconds of latency, you have this much bandwidth, and, you know, this percentage packet loss. I love it. I love it. That's really clever. If you want to email the show, go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and choose TechSnap from the dropdown or email us directly, TechSnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. We love your questions, your feedback, your network-related stuff, your security-related stuff, your storage-related stuff, all of it. Send it in to us. We'll answer it on a future episode of the TechSnap show. But with the feedback all done, it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup are stories that didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still wanted to give you some links to follow up on your own after the show. And some of these links came from our special intelligence agency known as our subreddit at techsnap.reddit.com. And our first story is interesting, coming from Wired. Here's a spy firm's price list for secret hacker techniques. And I, I browsed through this a little bit, Alan, to get some of the details on the prices. Uh, and it seems to be a range, but uh, you know, for things like Safari or an Explorer browser uh, flaws, they can fetch a price as much as fifty thousand dollars. And for uh, a harder target of, like, say, Google Chrome, Zerodium's price raises to eighty thousand. Remote exploits that entirely defeat security of an Android or Windows phone device goes for as much as a hundred thousand dollars. And an iOS attack can earn a hacker half a million dollars. And they have a whole ah, price I, list. I was here. like, why is Chrome on here twice? But they have two different kinds: a remote code execution in Chrome. Ie Tor browser Firefox or Safari is thirty thousand, but if you get uh, what's it, uh, Sandbox Escape from mm-hmm. Ie Safari or Chrome, mm-hmm. then that's fifty or eighty thousand dollars. Yeah, nice. Yeah, I, I was going through and here. Then, uh, remote code execution of Flash Player is fifty k. Yep. But if you get a Sandbox Escape as well, then that's eighty k. Yep. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's interesting to see Adobe PDF Reader so high up there. I, I understand it's a big target, and that makes sense. Must, yeah, just the deployment. But you would think it would happen often enough that... <laughs> but, see, the big problem here is that Zerodium is willing to pay these amount of money 
for you to sell them the exploit so they can keep yeah. it, or rather, so they can sell it to governments or whoever. Yeah, they talk about pay them. they have a subscription service to Zerodium for governments in there. It's like $500,000 yeah, a year. Yeah, food pairing. So, yeah, the government pays $500,000 for access to this catalog of all the ones that they've bought much cheaper. So, if you have one of these, just sell it directly to the government for half a million dollars. There you go. They'll, put, they'll give you a cash discount. All right, mm. let's talk about the Great Firewall of Santa Cruz. Yes. So this is actually like a computer science homework assignment. Actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of modeled after the Great Wall of China, the uh, Great Firewall of China. Uh, but basically, it's a programming exercise to write uh, a firewall that basically modify content as it goes through. So this is from the uh, Computer Science 13H course, you know, Introduction to Programming and Data Structures, uh, taught at uh, University of California at Santa Cruz. But it's uh, <laughs> the dear and beloved leader of the glorious People's Republic of Santa Cruz uh, <laughs> is a failure of the short-lived <laughs> anyway uh, is to use a Bloomfit to basically uh, replace text on web pages mm. with the new new speak, which uh, is required to keep people uh, content pure and uh-huh. uh, keep people <laughs> from thinking too much. <laughs> uh, but you have to be able to do that at 10 gigabits a second. Right. That is kind of so tricky, actually. Basically, using a Bloom filter, which is kind of a hash table, and basically goes and tells you, you know, you have to find instances of these words and replace them with other words. And hmm. So basically, your program, when presented with a stream of text, it must first pass uh, to the Bloom filter. If the Bloom filter rejects any word, uh, uh, then the person responsible is guilty of a thought crime. And uh, oh. there is very ungood indeed. And so the... Mini Love will caution him. Um, if he does it again, we will send him off to Joy Camp. <laughs> uh, if all the words pass the Bloom filter, then they are passed on to the next phase of processing in order to replace any offensive, insensitive, or otherwise dangerous words with the new approved words. This is creeping me out now. Yes. Uh, the advantage is that your government can augment this list at any time via the Mini True. Uh, Minitrue will also remove words from the Bloom filter that you, in your wisdom, are, uh, decide are not wholesome for people to use. So basically you build a, a, a data structure that's basically struct word, contains uh, a string for the old speak word and a string for the new speak word, and uh, we'll go through and replace all the content, replace old word with new word, um, but also you know there's a list of bad words that will cause you to have to the thought police sent after you. Yes. Watch out, Alan. So, build a Bloom filter, uh, set the bits of all the words in the English list on the Bloom filter, build a hash table, insert all the words and the translations into the hash table, and then when presented with a text, indicate whether a thought crime has occurred, and in either case, provide helpful translations into Newspeak uh, for the words that do exist. Good news, Alan. I got good news. It's time to enable two-factor authentication on your Amazon account, or at least it will be very soon. Amazon is rolling out two-factor authentication. It's going to be in the advanced security settings after you log into your Amazon account, uh, and uh, I think this is going to be pretty neat. Now, I think you're going to have to have the Amazon app on your phone, and it's going to send it kind of like the Google Authenticator through the Amazon app, it looks like. This is rolling out in beta right now, and, and Gadget has an article up on it, but it's not out to the average folk. 
just yet. It's interesting because you would expect Amazon to not want to do that because they're all about low friction and so on. And if you go to buy something, you're not going to want to have to find your phone. Yeah, maybe it's just for uh, when managing your account. I wonder how yeah, that'll work but out. But also, uh, you know, I can definitely see this, you know, EC2 and Amazon Cloud Services people have wanted yes. this for I think they've had it for that for a while. But, that, that does you know, make sense. If your Amazon accounts become bigger and bigger and full of more things than just buying books, then it kind of makes sense to get this done. How about some light reading, a graduate course in applied cryptography? What do we have here? Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is basically an open source textbook. It's still a uh, uh, draft version. Oh, cool. But it's uh, a textbook on how to actually use cryptography. This is neat. Specifically, it's designed to be standalone and not actually require you to do any reading outside of it. So it has some references to other books if you want to learn more about a topic. But the idea is that it will contain enough coverage on all the different topics that you'll be able to do everything you need from the one book instead of having to, you know, it just says, oh, also, go read this whole other book on encryption before you can continue reading this book. Yeah, that does make sense. All right, let's talk about flying a Cylon Raider. Yes. Uh, so this is basically a reference to an episode of Battlestar Galactica where, you know, they yeah. uh, a shot down Raider and they had to, like, climb it and figure, figure out how to fly it. Uh, but it's actually about hacking. <laughs> yeah, of course. So it's, um, sometimes when you're compromising a, a someone else's machine or whatever, you don't have access to all the tools that you're used to using for mm. hacking things. So how do you deal with that? You know, how do you hack when you don't have all your favorite tools that you usually do for hacking? You have very limited tools, maybe, because you're not even root on the machine yet, and there's not much installed. You know, how do you actually deal with it? So it's actually a video presentation about that. I thought it might be interesting to some people. Nice. And I can see, uh, I see Metasploit in the shot there. Check it out. Link in the show notes. Mm-hmm. That's a great one. Like after TechSnap wraps up, you're like, oh, I want more. I want more. That'd be a good one to go check out. All mm-hmm. right. Tell me about NGROC to proxy internal servers in restrictive environments. Now, is NGROC sort of like network GROC? Is that, what are we, what is that? I don't know. Okay. But, uh, well, because GROC just means to understand. Yeah. I, but, uh, I'm uh, not sure what NGROC is. It's an, uh, a proxy server thing for island hopping. So I compromise, say, the secretary's machine on a secure network. And now from that machine, I can access you know, their, in, their internal corporate website that has all kinds of goodies on it. But it's really difficult to do that because I'm, like, you know, I'm using command line tools or something on, on her hacked machine. Mm-hmm. So NGROC would run on her machine, tunnel out of the firewall there. Oh, I see. Basically, okay. on my machine, uh, this URL would show up, and I'd be able to just go to it, and it would handle routing the packets. NGROC is that. secure tunnels to local host. I want to expose a local server behind a NAT or a firewall to the internet. Yes. And basically using that for island hopping. So you would install NGROC on the secretary's machine and then use her machine via NGROC to uh, use the web application. But you'd be able to do it by just going to a URL on your machine and NGROC would handle the tunneling. Hmm. It could also be useful just uh, if you have an insecure service on mm-hmm. your homeland and you need to access it from your laptop on the road, you could probably set this up for that as well. Ooh, Alan, that's exactly what I was thinking. All right, how about a platform-independent PIC, PIC, for loading or, DLLs and executing commands? How about yes. that, Alan? A platform-independent. A position-independent code. Assembly code. Oh, okay. Or, yeah, so originally the, the first version of this was by somebody else and it basically launched calc.exe from a bit of assembly <laughs> and didn't, uh, didn't have to be loaded in a certain place in memory or anything to do it. Okay. Uh, but then somebody was like, well, could I expand this to the point of actually loading a DLL to do you know, more complicated stuff? And they managed it. 
And so basically it's a bit of code that you could stick in a, in a malware and it would be able to you know, use the functions of a DLL. This is just the bare bones of a code which obtains base of kernel32.dll and searches the exploit address table to locate win exec before passing calc.exe as a parameter. Ah. Huh. Huh. Could pass something else much more nefarious than calc if you really wanted to. (laughs) So yeah, you basically find where the kernel is and then walk through it until you find the function that uses execute code and then call it. Speaking of code, let's talk about a little uh, signing bypass for the Windows driver. Hey-o, how about yeah, that? So uh, when you go to install a driver on newer versions of Windows, yeah, especially for the a server, while too. Uh, it won't allow you to install it without, unless it's signed. Yeah. Well, it turns out there's a way to get around that. And uh, Daruzbi, uh, which is an infamous piece of malware, uh, originally originated in 2008 and is used in well-known hacks like the Mitsubishi Heavy Industries hack or a... Um, the Anthem hack recently in 2015, oh, okay. the the um, healthcare provider. Yep. Uh, so this is you know some fairly high end malware, and it has a way to get around the Windows driver signing thing so that it can install a rootkit basically. Hmm. And uh, this French research company has figured out how it works, and has all the details on their website. I need more power. Intel 72 core Knight's Landing Xeon supercomputer chip is cleared for takeoff. Yeah, I said 72 cores. Yeah, I said 72 cores. 14 nanometer process with 3D Trigate transistors. The interesting thing, I thought uh, Intel Phi was a video card. Huh. uh, Basically, at some point, I think they had a video card that had the Phi processor. Now it's actually, this would be the main processor, though. Uh, So this is not a regular desktop machine. (laughs) Uh, it's what's described as a workstation. They're describing it as being a really big honking machine. Yeah. Uh, but it's got uh, a lot of power. It combines a whole bunch designed. of chips. It's, it comes mm-hmm. in like a PCIe card, adding card too. You snap into the motherboard. It's not like right. it's a... Okay, so yeah, it's like a video card basically. Yeah. Uh, and the general idea for it is that if you're working in research or something, you use one of these to test your application before you go send it to the supercomputer. Oh, yeah, sure. That, yeah, because that... Ah, so the, the, the older Xeon Phi was called Knight's Corner and had up to 61 cores. This new one will give 72 cores. So we have a technical analysis of Ghost, you know, the browser privacy extension. Now, what did we learn here? Because I've heard good and so, bad things about Ghost. Sounds fascinating. No, I think this is, this is Ghost, the um, SSL oh, no? vulnerability. Oh, oh, I thought it was the privacy. Dang, I was hoping to actually find out if this is... All right, so tell me about this no, then. So, uh, you know how we like to make fun of when we have these named vulnerabilities? Yes. Uh, so, Ghost. Uh, Too many names, Alan. Which is uh, a vulnerability is a serious weakness in uh, Linux glibc library. Ah, yes. It allows you to do things. Yes, like uh, like uh, own a machine with an image viewer, those kinds of things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that one. Um and so remember they had all the marketing, they had the logo and everything. Mm-hmm. So this is this guy's analysis of their marketing campaign for it. Oh, so okay. he takes I love the logo it. and then puts putting it through filters and showing <laughs> And he's like, this isn't even a real shell logo. That's you know, that's what the icon for a shell is. <laughs> <laughs> so he does an analysis on the the PR from calls about the ghost vulnerability. It says, internally, ghost appears to be uh, implemented as a lossy representation of a two-dimensional raster image combining, you know, uh, chroma subsampling, blah, 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 uh, otherwise known as JPEG. (laughs) 
uh, this compressed data stream maps to an underlying array of eight bit uh, RGB pixels arranged uh, sequentially into a rectangular shape that is 300 pixels wide and 320 pixels high. You know, this image is not accompanied by an embedded color profile. <laughs> we must note that it poses a considerable risk that on some devices the picture may not render faithfully and that critical information may be lost. You know, uh, it's pointed out to me in the chat room that I was thinking of ghostry. That's ah. what I was thinking of, ghostry, not ghosts. The image modification date returned by the web server at community.quals.com is, you know, October 2nd, 2014. <laughs> Roughly 90-day delay between the creation of the image and the release of the advisory probably corresponds to an industry standard period needed to test materials uh, with appropriate focus groups. <laughs> right. Removal of the metadata allows the JPEG image to be shrunk uh, from 22 kilobytes to 21 kilobytes, about 4% saving, without any loss of the image quality. Enterprises wishing to conserve vulnerability disclosure-related bandwidth <laughs> may want to consider running JHEAD minus pure JPEG to accomplish this goal. <laughs> and it goes on and on like this, making fun of uh, the thing. There's also, instead of a JPEG, if they've used a PNG uh, with just the 12 colors they needed and run PNG crush, the image could have been only 4 kilobytes, saving about 80%. <laughs> Of course, all this mundane technical detail about JPEG images distracts us from the broader issue highlighted by the ghost report. Oh, well, that's true. Yes. JPEG compression is not particularly suitable for non-photographic content. That's the important yes. issue. <laughs> yes. uh, PNGs are definitely better if you have animated content that's only a couple of solid colors. Uh, JPEG is mostly about maintaining edges and so on Yeah. Uh, and, and compression. Hey, I got good news. Gmail's got your back if you get an email from someplace that didn't use encryption. They say they're going to start warning users. Uh, I guess that's the not like uh, like GPG encryption, but like SSL type encryption between the connections. Right. So if the email server that sent the email to Google didn't uh, send it to Google with encryption, uh, it means somebody could have read it. Yeah. Yeah. Or specifically, NSA might have read the email. A 737 tail strike caused by a typo on a tablet. Yes. In August of last year, a Boeing 737 was experienced a tail strike while taking off. Uh, now. I actually have, I've also, I, I heard specifically the, the Microsoft Surface tablets. So uh, This one was an iPad. Oh, okay. So in Delta, uh, I've Qantas. heard the Surface this tablets. This is Qantas, the uh, Australian. And I guess, Alan, check this out. I'm told, no, I, I won't say anything much more, but I guess from what I'm told, like they <laughs> download something to the Surface tablet every single day, like an entire database every day. The pilots download it to their tablet before they leave their home, and it does like this whole process of like updating the software on their Microsoft Surface tablets. And that's what they use for their flight information, but they're not allowed to plug it into the airplane while flying. Yes. It has to run on battery it's the entire time. Maps and stuff like that. Yeah, I just thought that was kind of funny. They're not allowed to plug well, it in. They don't, they don't, you wouldn't want something getting from the surface onto the airplane yeah. internal system. Yeah, just got to make sure that bad, the battery stays healthy. Got to mm -hmm. make sure that stays good. <laughs> oh, you can get one of those power bricks. Well, I'm sure they uh, test it to make sure that it lasts the length of the flight, right? They must. You right. would think. I would hope. <laughs> uh, and they'll last quite a while if you don't turn the screen on all the time. I mean, you probably don't need the maps 24 7 anyway. I hope. I hope. Uh, so basically, <laughs> while typing in the weight of the plane on the iPad, because touchscreen, you fumbled some numbers, yeah. you switched two around or whatever. Yeah. Although this could easily have happened on paper if you kick two numbers around or something. But, yeah, I suppose. Uh, not enough power during takeoff, and the tail end of the plane smacked the runway. <laughs> because of a tablet <laughs> mishap. Because touchscreens are a terrible interface. I agree. I agree. Yeah, and that's why I was shocked to learn that they were these Surface Pros were there. I was like, wow, okay. Why not just use the laptop? But you know what? 
It's the way of the future. Speaking of way of the future, iOS 9 reverse engineering with a little JavaScript. How yes. about this, Alan? Avsecure.com has a mm -hmm. write-up of how you can, uh, now that we have a jailbreak for iOS 9, uh, starting to deal with some of the restrictions that Apple has in place that uh, the jailbreak doesn't get out of. Yeah, huh. Uh, so, so it looks like among them was a patch lifting Apple's ban on RWX read-write execute memory pages. This happens to be an important feature the V8 engine was designed to take advantage of, and they can't do it right, anymore so because of kernel patch protection. Yeah, uh, because yeah, the the kernel protection in iOS nine doesn't allow you to mark uh, a chunk of code as somewhere you can write and also somewhere you can run the code, because that's how you end up with that that Linux vulnerability we talked about earlier, uh, where you could overwrite a chunk of memory and then run it. Um, but turns out the JavaScript engine relies on being able to do that. Uh, yeah, and I'm then. Uh, Mm -hmm. Next story here, uh, Kaspersky has issued their 2016 security prediction. How about that headline? Uh, yes, their headline, it's the end of the, uh, of the world for APTs as we know them. Yeah. Um, so if you scroll down to the, the uh, table of contents, I can briefly go through a couple of the items there. So the no more APTs, basically they're saying uh, the bad guys are going to work less on persistence now because they're more worried about not getting caught. Right? They don't want you to know they're in, they're in your network. So after they get in, they're going to get back out and try to not leave a trace so that they can get back in later the same way. Whereas if they stayed in the whole time, that increases the chance of you catching them. Uh, and also they're going to be looking at more ways of having malware where there's no file ever gets written to the disk, where it only ever runs in memory. And so that it's harder for you to tell that you've ever been compromised in the first place. Uh, they had a couple other ones in there. Um, more you know, nightmares about uh, hmm. ransomware, more attacks against banks. And Did other you see that last banks. one there? The last, uh, yep. the apocalypse uh, so, is nigh. Uh, attack on security vendors, you know, like Kaspersky has had people go after mm. them specifically. Mm -hmm. uh, more sabotage, extortions, and shams and stuff like that. Uh, asking who we trust and so on. And then the future of the internet and the future of transportation. So I'm sure they're talking about hacking cars there. And then the last one is the, uh, the uh, cryptopocalypse. It's nice. <laughs> like it. um, need uh, encryption, so we should keep using that. Interesting report. Kaspersky mm -hmm. follows that stuff pretty closely. And then on a lighter note, we have our last story. Here. Yeah, how a Chinese Tinder clone screws you. <laughs> yes. So the headline I wrote for it was, sign up for a Tinder clone to get laid. Instead, get screwed. Yeah, nice. <laughs> so it turns out that... Uh, this website or app, whatever, uh, endangers people by failing to use any encryption and by exposing all the private data you put into it, which is like the same level of data that people got in the Ashley Madison hack Jeez. to everyone. So you don't even have to hack them. They just expose it all. In, uh, so you can get all the information about people that have signed up. Yeah, so the problem when you have these clone apps, this is a yeah. big problem in the app world because there's a lot of knockoffs and they can be, they can be accessible worldwide. And they are often uh, quite shoddily done. Yeah, and this guy, look, it's just about tricking people in download. Like, people aren't going to use the app usually. They're going to pay for it or whatever, or download it or whatever, and then, you know, see some ads or whatever, and then realize it's not the right program and then get rid of it. Mm -hmm. So they're just trying to get used as quickly as they can. This is a great write up. He did a little packet capture to break it all down and then contacts the authors. Some really good stuff. Did some actual yeah, genuine because reporting. Because of the lack of encryption and so on, it'd be easy to steal people's phone numbers and other personal information and yeah. hmm. the photos they've taken and all kinds of things. Location information he's able to get. Huh, this yeah. is a great write-up. Wow, this is a good post. Really nice. 
can find out. You can find it at the bottom of the round. In fact, links to everything Mr. Jude talked about is in them show notes. Just go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com, look for episode 242 of the TechSnap program, and then we link stuff pretty much in chronological order that we talked about it. So when we hear, you hear us say something, be like, well, there it is. Boom. It's like magic. We also have RSS feeds. Those are also like magic. You just subscribe and get this show every single week. This is our 242nd episode, and we've never missed a week, so there's a good chance we'll have an episode next week. You might as well subscribe and get it automatically, and then you got something for your brain organ while you're driving, while you're working, while you're making food. I don't judge while you're pooping. Whatever it is, you got us automatically. Don't forget, you can also join us live over at JB I Live. I think about that. You're welcome. Over at jblive.tv, we do this show live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific, which is? Uh, 4 p.m. Eastern, 2100 UTC. Boom. JupiterBroadcasting.com slash calendar to get that converted in your, in your local time zone. Links, feedback, topic suggestions, techsnap.reddit.com. And one more plug for JupiterBroadcasting.com slash contact because we love getting your feedback. Also, a very happy Thanksgiving to all of our audience in the U.S. Hope you had a great turkey day, and we'll see you right back here next week.